and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back, or welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. By day, I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach where I get to work with all kinds of performers, both in the corporate world and in the sports arena. Love what I do for a living. Fired up this podcast to try to learn more and to share some of the conversations that I have in the boardroom, in the locker room with some amazing performers. So I am bringing them to you and hopefully you are finding it interesting. If you do enjoy these conversations and have found that the gems that we uncover during these conversations apply to your life, if you could rate us a review on iTunes, it really does help us as we continue to try to build this thing out. If you could share these conversations on social media or with a friend via email or text, it does help us as we continue to grow the podcast. Thank you for being here. So grateful to have you and appreciate your time. Uh, just really happy to continue to do this. We are now over 130 episodes and we've been doing it for two and a half years. And it's just been a really meaningful exercise for me. And uh, it means the world to me when I hear from all of you that you're actually listening to these conversations. So thank you for being here. Now to today's guest. Seb Little is somebody who I got connected to by a mutual friend of ours, Brian Kripcher. And when I first talked to Brian, he said, hey, I think you'd like to talk with Seb. He's interested in what you're interested in, and perhaps you can mentor him a bit. And over the past year or so, I've gotten to know Seb really well, and I've learned so much from Seb. And I think one of the beauties of when you mentor somebody is that you as the mentor become the mentee because the mentee often has a ton of knowledge and information and wisdom to share. And Seb, you will find out quite early in this conversation is certainly wise and just has a ton of information and is extremely passionate about human performance. So Seb currently works at the McChrystal Group. Before that, he went to Yale. So he's obviously not a dummy. And we'll talk about that in this conversation. And he played football at Yale. So he'll talk about his experience playing Division One football. And Seb is somebody, as I said earlier, is just obsessed with humans and really, really interested in elite performance. What are the habits? What are the skills? What are the techniques that the elite of the elite use to be their best? As I said, he's with the McChrystal Group, and they have taken military philosophy and strategy and applied it to the corporate world in quite an amazing way. 
And Seb is really at the forefront of human development and goes out and teaches and trains and coaches elite athletes, elite performers, and is extremely passionate. And I know you're going to love this conversation with Seb. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Seb Little. Seb, so pumped to have you on the podcast. We have gotten to know each other over the past year or so. We got introduced by Brian Kripcher. Uh, Brian is an awesome guy. I know he's a bit of a mentor to you. I think he's a bit of a mentor to just about everybody Everybody he interacts with. Uh, Brian, big basketball guy. Uh, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about your upbringing, but just want to thank Brian for connecting us because it's been an amazing relationship since he connected us. We've had a lot of lunches, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, texts, and just conversations. And I, I so appreciate your your knowledge, your wisdom, your energy, and your curiosity as far as what this world is bringing. Uh, so where I'd love to start with you is just set the table for us and give us a little background on your upbringing, what life was like for you as a kid. Uh, give us an idea and a glimpse and behind the curtains of little Seb and what life was like for you as a kid. Totally, totally. So first of all, thanks for having me on the on the podcast. I'm um, obviously listening to some episodes and I'm excited to be on this and um, and just chat, man. And then shout out to Coach K, who's uh, obviously the man. Um, so thanks for, for connecting us, putting us together. So background on me. Um, so I was born and raised uh, in Cheshire, Connecticut, which is um, basically central Connecticut, uh, close to New Haven, Waterbury, Wallingford. Um, Raised by mom and grandma, so lived with mom and grandma until I was 13 years old. Mom and I moved across town, um, but really, I was fortunate enough to have really two really strong women in my life. Dad was kind of in and out with uh, with some 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 issues and things, and um, for me, it was, it was it was incredible. I would love my childhood. I had an awesome time. I was the I was the one that you'd call in for mac and cheese dinner on Sunday night, and I would scarf it down in 10 minutes and then go out and play with my friends again. So it was. Uh, I would say I was at the very back end of that kind of um, tech, or I would say the, yeah, the last kind of, that didn't always have the tech. Um, and I am super, super grateful for that. So uh, went from high school, Cheshire High School, played football and basketball there, was involved in every student activity you could imagine, um, student government and everything. Um, and then somehow found my way into Yale University. They let me in and I don't know why or how, um, but I think we slighted the application and we got my way in. Um, I played football at Yale for five years, tore my MCL my freshman year, tore my ACL my senior year. So um, came back for my fifth year, um, had an incredible experience after that ACL and it, it probably the... the um, the top challenge or hardship I've ever had to overcome was my ACL um, coming back from that. And then uh, joined McChrystal Group in Washington, D.C., right outside Washington, D.C., which is a leadership and organizational development firm. Um, and I, I just I love what I do. I love the sports psychology work I do on the side. Um, I love the speaking work that I get to do, the facilitation, the workshopping. Um, so honestly, man, it's, it's uh, life's good right now, man. No, no complaints. So Seb gets the record for going through his childhood and college and professional career in the fastest of all of our podcast guests. And I'm definitely going to slow it down a little bit. We were actually talking about slowing down before we fired up the mics. And I know I have a tendency to speak really fast and move fast. And sometimes people have a hard time staying with me. So we're going to press pause. We're going to rewind. We're going to take our time and we're going to marinate and sit on what is Seb. Uh, I want to just go back to childhood. So mom and grandma, mm -hmm. Uh, talk about what they taught you from a young age. Yeah, yeah. My mom, and my grandma are uh, two of the most, the kindest, most thoughtful, um, loving women, and and, um, and and I would also add non-judgmental um, is one of the one thing I, things I've gotten from my mom. Uh, 
so so I mean, candidly, Dad was uh, alcoholic, drug addict, um, and that put me in. Um, you know, I visit halfway houses, and I, would, and I would visit kind of the associated places. What happens when your when your uh, family member is in that situation? Um, and f- throughout the entire process, for me to meet the people that I was able to meet, who life just hadn't gone their way, and for to watch my mom interact with those folks, um, and just consistently show love, uh, was just a really incredible experience and, and developmental for me growing up. So, so for me, I think. Um, Mom and grandma kind of gave me the the power of, uh, in a lot of ways, service too. Mom signed me up for a lot of community service stuff that I did not want to go to. Uh, And I would show up and I would love it. And it was kind of the anticipation of not wanting to go. But as soon as I was there, I was fully immersed and present and really enjoying the experience of serving others and giving to others. And I think that's been a theme that's that's really I've carried with me. Um, The idea of servicing others and and being um, giving more of yourself than you expect, I think, has been uh, a big part of of what they've given me. What did mom do for a living? Combination of things. So first, and this is probably the one that makes the most sense, she was a preschool teacher. Um, so I was raising an only child. Uh, I have a half-sister, but we weren't raised in the same household. Um, half-sister from mom? or From from dad. From dad. Yeah, from dad. And uh, so she was a preschool teacher. I had to learn how to share. Like, I had to learn how to share my mom and that attention. And, uh, you know, there's definitely some characteristics of an only child that we actually just recently talked about a few weeks ago. Um but uh, yeah, so so mom was a uh, preschool teacher. Then she went into uh, working at a graphic design firm. Um, she's an accountant by degree, um, but never really used it. Uh, and then currently, she's working at a home care provider, um, nonprofit home care provider, basically servicing and matching up um, employees with uh, folks that elderly folks that actually need more, you know, more treatment and care. And how about grandma? Grandma was a, a nurse, uh, full time nurse for until she retired. Um, was graduated top in her class um, in Wisconsin, and then uh, was a, a nurse at um, Allen Park in Cheshire for 35 years, something like that. And did she live with you guys? She did. So for 13, we lived in with Grandma for 13 years, um, then just moved across town. Yeah. And did you have aunts or uncles or anybody else, or was it that was sort of your family, mom and grandma? That was my nuclear family. I, I'm, I'm super fortunate and blessed to have a lot of, I would say, uh, so so it, blood family, absolutely, aunt, uncle, cousins, um, very close to them. But I would say even, even from a location standpoint, I had about four to five families in my life that I still consider almost, almost near blood um, that – I, they're like brothers and sisters to me. Um, so, so I would say like my extended family reaches out extended beyond just mom and grandma. What did those other families do for you? Man. Um, I think the, the boldest one is that they, some of my best friends, fathers became father figures to me. Mm. Um, you know, I, I look at three houses down from me was my best friend, Max. We met in third grade when we were on the same third grade project and we had to put a pin where we were, uh, where, where our house was on the map. And I was like, dude, you need to move your pen over. Cause that's like, that's, you just marked my house. And he's like, nah, that that's mine. And we were like, oh, so now we should be best friends. It was classic stepbrothers moment. We kind of gave each other a high five and all of a sudden started hanging out. Uh, and Max's dad has been, um, just a role model and, a, a just a, a prime example of what it means to be a father. So I've had a few people in that realm that have been, um, extremely important for the man that I've become today. And seeing your dad go through his challenges, how did that impact you? Man, um, I'm grateful for it now. I think in high school, I was uh, there was a combination of, of anger, and I didn't know how to talk about it, so the transparency wasn't there as, as well. In college, I started to open up a little bit about, a little bit more. Um, some of my college friends actually knew the situation before my high school friends, who actually 
who actually met and, and knew my dad. So your high school friends, even though they were around you all the time and they'd see dad come and go, they didn't really understand what was going on. Yeah, it, it was something that I, I wasn't secure with um, or I don't think I'd really come to grips with how I wanted to talk about it and how it shaped me. Um, but it was a total driver. Um, so, you know, mom's white, dad's black, being a biracial kid in a um, primarily white, majority white um, high school and kind of educational environment definitely, definitely teach, teaches you, I'd say teaches you and shapes you in a lot of ways. Um, again, that was a reflective time for me in college when there was a lot more diversity around me and I actually had the ability to bounce those ideas and thoughts off of other people. Um, but for me, I mean, uh, like I look at my dad and he's this definition of perseverance and drive and motivation, um, the way he works room and, and, and communicates with others is very similar to me. Uh, but then I also look at some of the, you know, consistency, was it always there? Um, commitment, was, was it always there? And those are some, certain things that are extremely important to me in the way that I've shaped myself. How do you make sense of addiction? Man, heavy question. Um, people talk about addiction um, and those who don't have somebody who's gone through it, it's very superficial. Um, and it almost seems like there's a switch and you could just turn the switch off and all of a sudden there's no longer addiction there. And having witnessed it firsthand, um, I don't have the exact definition. I can't look it up. You know, you could, you could go look it up in the... Um, on Google or in the psychology handbook, but really what for me it, it means is uh, this insatiable uh, desire to, to pursue or get something that you don't currently have at the moment. And it's you're willing to, to shut off or turn off or disregard all things that may matter to you um, on a long-term basis for the short-term gain of making sure that you satisfy whatever stress is, uh, is going through your head. And um, it's a terrible, it's a de disease and I truly believe it's a family disease because it affects everybody around that person. You said family disease. I was, my mind immediately went to genetics as well. How does it impact you knowing that, you know, the stats on addiction in a family is, is pretty staggering. So how, how does it impact your decision-making and how you think about your own world and, and how you navigate and operate in it? Yeah, I would say it was a bigger concern for me in the high school, college years, particularly as it came to drugs and alcohol. Now, drugs has never been something that I've, I've been interested in or really tried and, and or pursued. Um, but alcohol, especially from a social sense, for me, um, there's a 33% chance that I have inherited some of those genes from you know, that's, that's, a, it's a linear, linear kind of genetic relationship. Um, and for high school, it was, um, I think for people that were around me, I didn't drink at all in high school. And I think a lot of people were experimenting that time. And, um, you know, when people were going out and partying and all that stuff for me, it was, uh, you know, I always gave the, they gave the excuse kind of that, uh, Hey, athlete, athletics first. If I go, you know, binge drink one night, I lose all seven days of my last workouts. And I, one, I genuinely meant that and I felt that, um, and athletics was more, more important to me. My, you know, my athletic career, my academic career was more important, but the one that really was the, the hidden one that I didn't really tell many people was because I wasn't comfortable with putting myself in a situation where I might lose control. Um, so I was, when the first time I ever decided to partake in alcohol was extremely thoughtful. Um, after a lot of careful consideration and, and kind of um, pressure testing how I wanted to think and, and how I wanted to behave in that situation. Um, and it was a pretty willing, pretty intentional choice to, to, to drink when I decided to drink. We're going to get into sports. Before we do that, you brought up being mixed race. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has always interested me are people that are, you know, mixed whatever. Like it could be mixed ethnicity or culture or religion or or whatever it might be, but especially with race playing such a big role in how the world sees you, 
Uh, talk about how that's impacted you and how you think about belonging and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I think, again, college was a really important time for me and my identity, um, particularly just having another just thoughtful intellectual people that had, had and shared experiences before, which I didn't always have in high school. Um, when you are so much the minority, uh, in a lot of ways you become token. So I was in a lot of ways the token black friend for a lot of my white friends. Um, the incredible piece about being biracial and about being raised and having both cultural influence on both white and black, right, uh, sides of my family was that you learn how to be a chameleon. So in pretty much every environment, any social environment, I can usually figure out how I need to or how I can interact to, um, success is the wrong word, but to, to create positive relationships with those around me. Um, connect. Yeah. The connection piece. Um, and, and that only amplified, I think the more, um, aware I got of how I was appearing in certain situations, how you walk into a room is really important. And I doing a lot of speaking now, I, am I an alpha? Am I going to come in as a football player? And and I want to, that be one of the, the identities that I lead with. And in Texas, that's a great call because in Texas, they love their football. But when you're walking into a group of CNOs, which I had before, I want to come in as an intellectual. What are CNOs? Sorry, uh, chief nursing officers. Thank you okay. very much. So depending on, um, you know, if I'm going into a high school in an inner city, which I've done multiple, multiple times on, on some keynotes, I want to know and I want to think about how am I presenting myself to make sure I'm connecting with those guys and those, those gals, right? Um, whether it's from music, whether it's from, but all of that comes from understanding my own identity first. So am I coming in in this sense or if I'm coming in that sense, it's really important for me to know how I step into a room. Yeah. Because you also want to be authentic and real and genuine. Totally. And if you're not authentic with that sort of stuff, people read it. Yeah. Um, but you started to get into something there where taking your identity and moving it beyond sports and you ended up at Yale, mm. which is more known for academics than it is sports. I know that sometimes they have good basketball, football, whatever. Lacrosse has actually become powerhouse. Um, but, you know, when someone hears Yale, they think of books. Um, so first of all, you were sort of modest and saying, oh, I stuck my way in. But no one really sneaks their way into Ivy Leagues. So I'm curious about academics and, and how that was a priority for you. Uh, in high school and how that showed up. And then perhaps you can also talk about sports and how sports came into your life. Yeah. So academically speaking, that started for me in fourth grade. Um, I got a B on a spelling test and I decided that that was the last time I was going to get a B. I don't know why I thought Bs were inferior. For some people, Bs are great. But for me, for some reason, it meant that I hadn't done my best. How vivid is that for you? Um, I could picture the classroom. I can't picture the exact moment, but I could I picture the classroom. Um, and I was in Miss Otis's class and I got a B and I was just, I just wasn't happy with it. And I decided that I was not going to get a B until, you know, you name it. Um, and I didn't get another B, uh, in my academic career until college. And Leo's to say, I got a few more B's or minuses in college. So sneaking your way into Yale is, is, is you being modest and we'll just, we'll just chalk it up to your <laughs> modesty. So you got straight A's all throughout high school. Yep. And... Uh, what was mom and grandma saying to you as you were doing that? They weren't. So one of the things I really respect about my mom is that um, the expectation for me, uh, the standard for me was in the way I behaved and interact with others. So mom's expectation was that I'm going to be respectful, I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to be good to other people. That was what was most important for her. The motivation, the drive of me came from me. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I didn't I was pretty easy when it came to academics and pushing your kid to do their homework. I had my schedule. I knew what I had to do. Um, I got it all done. Um, I procrastinated probably more than I should have. But what I learned how to do is I learned how to work the system. 
And I think um, now I'd say I like learning more than I did when I was actually in school. Uh, but w as a student, um, I knew how to play the game more than I cared about the grade. Um, I knew how to be respectful to teachers. I understood what they wanted. I understood how to collaborate effectively with my classmates. I knew how to be a good, positive role model for other people. Um, and that usually yields good results. So I knew how to, I figured out what the system was, and then I learned how to play the game. But it wasn't because I love school. And I love school, I, I liked going to school because I had my friends there and it allowed me to play sports. Um, and sports for me was the, the vehicle, particularly when I was younger, to, it was my outlet in a lot of ways. Um, as I was struggling with stuff with dad and um, frustrated, angry at certain points, never ever came across as an angry kid, but that was one of the reasons being in the weight room, being on the field was one of my outlets for that. Um, never have played the game angry and I've had friends and teammates try to pump me up and, and kind of talk smack to get me riled up. And I've always, always played, played my best in every part of my life when I'm positive and when I'm highly energetic. So if you see me dancing, it means it's, it means I'm a good mood and it probably means I'm going to execute and play pretty well. Uh, so sports for me, uh, it was one of the first things I was probably naturally good at. Uh, I actually swam and played baseball first. And then in fifth grade, knowing nothing about the game of football, um, decided I was going to give it a shot. My, my, my boy Max actually was like, hey, man, you should, you should come out. We were playing you know, schoolyard all, all the time in the street. Um, you should come out. And that came out with uh, my knee pads and my hip pads and my girdle pads completely in the wrong place. So I knew nothing about the game and ended up going um, playing in fifth grade and, and loved it. Um, scored a few touchdowns, didn't know which one of the lines was the end zone. So I just decided to run through and down the hill. Um, but had to, had to learn a lot. Stuff. <laughs> had to Forrest learn a lot, man. Running. Yeah. So that's, I would say, kind of the introduction to sport. And from, from that, that point on, that was a uh, uh, quite frankly, just a field of play for me to be a part of a team. Um, and it wasn't until more recently, probably towards the back end of, of college, that I realized that I loved football, but I loved being a part of a team more. And uh, I think that's kind of a thread that I've chased in a lot of ways. Was football the the sport in high school, or did you play other sports? I as played well? basketball. Um, don't ask my basketball coach how good I was. Actually, shout out to Coach Lee, um, who's again one of my mentors and role models. But uh, he, man. It, my interaction with basketball was a, one of a frustrating up and down. I got much better when I played, but that doesn't say much in terms of my actual ability. So you're just running around, grab some boards, play some defense. I and... played football on the basketball. Yeah, court. I got it. Yeah, I got the yeah, image. Hundred percent. Okay, so football was the sport for you. Totally. You mentioned love, and uh, it's an interesting time to talk about football. Uh, in the past week, we have Andrew Luck retiring from football. Mm. There was a video yesterday that surfaced with Rob Gronkowski talking about some of his challenges with football and having worked with division one football players and pro football players, I'm always amazed at their responses when I ask them, Oh, do you like football? Um, cause they're wide ranging and, and very, there's almost a hesitancy when I ask that question often. Um, and then some of them will say, yeah, I do. And some will say, you know what? It's, it's fine. I, I like the camaraderie or I like the competitiveness or I like the money or I like whatever. And you've been in a locker room. I'm sure you guys had 105 guys at Yale or however many guys on the locker room at a division one team. Um, so just talk about football and, uh, where your passion lied. You, you sort of hit on the camaraderie aspect, but you know, football is a violent sport. It is a sport that you have to be in a certain state mentally to perform well, especially the position you played, which, you know, you're, you're literally running and people's job is to put you down. Um, so talk about the position, talk about the experience and your mindset when you're playing football. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a question out to you now and I'm going to ask you to remind me if I forget it. And I had a friend of mine reach out and say, 
how does the position that you played in football relate to the way that you interact with the world? So whether that's in job or so on and so forth, I'll get back to that later. If not hit me. Um, so, uh, Oh, you're going to make me, I stole that on my, on the question. Yeah. The love. What what did you love about it? So, so I think twofold one, I believe that football is the best team game. There is no other sport. And I've thought about this a lot. There's no other sport where if I miss my job, I can directly impact your health. I'm going to get you with some rowers and you're going to spend some time with some rowers. Uh, (laughs) Cause that sport, I used to say football, hockey, like the team aspect of those sports. And then I worked with a division one rowing team Mm -hmm. And literally in rowing, and then we're going to go back to teamwork because yep, yep. it's still a big part, but the biggest one, think about this in rowing mm. and boys in the boat, great book for those that are interested in learning more about rowing. But in rowing, if I am the fastest, strongest, best rower in my boat, it doesn't matter because I can paddle as fast and as strong as I want. If I'm out of sync with the guys in the same boat, we're not going fast. And so that sport, literally the idea that I actually have to slow myself down to be in sync. And if we're not in sync, that's going to determine how fast or slow we go. I have decided that that is the ultimate team sport. We can debate it all you want, but sorry to interrupt. I just want to give (laughs) a shout out to rowing because it's a sport that I knew nothing about five years ago. And have since come up with this amazing appreciation for these people that no one will ever know their name. Um, You know, they are even more anonymous than a football player with a helmet on. And they literally have to be completely in sync with the people in the boat. And there's probably another sport that we're missing too that that is also team. But anyway, you love the team because yes. everybody has to play a role and do their job. Yeah, and honestly, and honestly, rowers, some of the rowers that I met, it, it was cool because you look at the biggest guys on campus. You got basketball, you got football, and you got the rowers because the rowers are are incredibly unique in the way that they're just shaped and, and their athletic ability, um, their ability to withstand pain. I say is is the most impressive thing I know about rowers between those and. Sw- you have to just like like to eat pain so yeah anyway totally agree with that let's let's actually riff on that so i call them pain sports and you hit the nail on the head swimmers pain Mm -hmm. sport cross country running is another one yeah wrestling and i put american football tennis is actually another one that people don't think of because it's a country club sport but anyone that watches nadal and federer and djokovic and those guys battle and what they have to go through and also if anyone's read andre agassi's book open you hear about the physical the mental the emotional pain so all of those sports i do i agree with you they're pain sports and to go back to my initial comment all of those sports i hear when i ask do you love it i hear hesitation Whereas like other sports like basketball, soccer, hockey, um, you know, even softball and baseball, like there's not as much hesitation when I ask if they love it. Um, That's not to say there aren't people that get burned out on different sports or don't love it. But the the football is absolutely a pain sport. And I think it's not just physical. Um, There's also the emotional piece and the mental piece and that's what you really heard Andrew Luck talking about um, but back to you because Andrew Luck's not sitting here right now he'd be interesting to talk to you but we'll take our Seb uh, <laughs> our, our stud Seb so yeah so what what did you actually love about the game and, and did you love it while you were playing yeah so I, I did love it when I was playing I love the team aspect the most so and and, and I'll caveat um, but when I say the the ultimate team game that you've got a bunch of physical sports you've got basketball you've got soccer you've got rugby I think is a good example 
Um, there's no one that directly correlates with me not doing your my job and you getting hurt. And I yeah. look at the left tackle, right? The left tackle misses their block. That's a free shot on a quarterback that is a back injury, a concussion, uh, you name it, right? So for me, being able to trust those around me and also be the one, um, have that amount of responsibility on my shoulders, that to me is why I love the game so much. Um, and then at the individual level, right, like um, – it's obviously one of the top sports in the United States, so there's a level of respect and kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, wasta that that like kind of recognition that you get from that. I think I loved that kind of when I did have that spotlight. I think I loved it. Um, and I would also say for me, the I'm not I'm not very externally competitive. And everybody's like, wait, really? You played a college sport? I'm extremely internally competitive, which means I want to be better than I was yesterday, which means I want to be better than I was last week. So from a game-to-game perspective, you can probably ask me what my, my biggest mistakes of were the game were of the game versus my biggest moments, my biggest highlights. Because I was so concerned and so obsessed with getting better by week by week that those little things would would, ha- would hang with me. And mm-hmm. that would be the thing I would always remember. Um, so the internal competition is actually what really drives me to be and do what I want to do. Were it's you better so in practice external. than games? I'll say I was even. I think I, I, I think I performed the way I practiced. I practiced hard. Um, I, I always say I don't have a lot of nostalgia when it comes to people asking me what I want to get back out there. My answer is usually no. That was a great, intense, awesome portion of my life. I grew a lot, but I left it all out there. What would get in the way of you being successful when you were playing in the game? Like you were just hinting that sometimes maybe you'd be self-critical and remember uh, like little things here and there. Would that show up in the game or it would be more when you were reflecting afterwards? I I, I had enough awareness to know when I had messed up in a game. Whether that was a, a blown call or a, a missed block or a dropped pass, like all those kind of. Were you able to ones. move on from it? Uh, yeah, it, it took. Um, so my sophomore year, we started to work with Brian Kane and uh, a sports psychologist. He came and worked with the team, and um, I immediately started to gravitate towards this idea of sports psychology and being able to work from through through performance, whether you're green light all go or you're red light and you're you just drop the third pass of the game. Um, and I remember the Cornell game, my I believe my senior year, and uh, I dropped a, a touchdown in the third quarter. Was having a great game. Um, it was the game of my career. Um, finished with about five catches and 100 yards and a touchdown. But I, I dropped the ball in the third quarter that would have put us up, and I was totally shook. Um, confidence totally got ra- totally got wrecked, and uh, I, you know came off to the sideline, did a few breathing exercises, um, had a few kind of mental reframing techniques, got back on the field, and I ended up, ca- ended up catching the 50 yard. Um, game-winning touchdown and without that I don't think I would have been able to get back to the point where I was confident when that ball was coming down that I was going to catch it because that ball was in the air for way longer than three seconds Mm. yeah and what did the breaths do for you in that moment slows me down Um, slows me down and it pulls my attention back from what happened and what what was happening in the past and what's actually currently happening in in the present Awesome. And you told me to ask you about what position you play and how that impacts. So talk about the position you played and how you think about how that impacted how you see the world. Yeah. So I moved from tight uh, from wide receiver when I first came in freshman year, started my first game, ended up getting injured my first game, but uh, played wide receiver um, my freshman, sophomore year. And then uh, ate a few cheeseburgers, and I ended up with my hand on the line playing some tight end and H-back. Now, I love the position, um, and it took me a little while to understand the physicality required to be a tight end. So I went from being, you know, 215 pounds attacking little cor- cornerbacks and, you know, usually winning those battles to going from about 225, 230 to hitting 
260-pound defensive ends that decided they want to take my head off. Did you want to make that move, or did they make that move for you? It was a – they made that move for me. Um, mm. It was a combination of some of the incoming – you know, at first the need at wide receiver, we needed people to fill that spot. Um, then they moving my skill set to something more, I think, that actually fit my body type and me kind of my uh, diverse and unique skill set, being able to kind of go hit and then also go go play in space. Um, yeah, so it was uh, – it was a, it was a transition for sure. Go back a little bit. Why Yale? Uh, what else? Where else were you looking, and why did you end up going there? The people. So when I was walking around campus, I did this thing called the smile test. Um, the smile test was when you walk around campus, you give people a little nod, and like all my all my dudes know what I'm talking about. You give somebody like the head nod, like "What's up, man?" Um, but I would do that to students around campus, and I got more responses back with smiles from Yale than any other school. And where else this, were you looking? So, I was looking so we at, can um, find out where, where people don't smile. <laughs> uh, my top three schools were Yale, Harvard, Princeton. Um, I was looking at Columbia. I was looking at um, Temple, New Hampshire, um, some of the NESCAC schools, um, but came down to those three for me. Football-wise, is that where you were supposed to be? Or was there any other opportunities to play at? Let's use UConn as an example. Yeah, I actually, I had spoken to UConn for a little while. That was my dream school because growing up in Connecticut, UConn Huskies is, is the school. It's the place you want to go. And I've watched UConn men's and women's basketball games since the time I was five years old. So UConn was actually the place I would have loved to go. Um, but when, when I heard the athletic director at Yale say that Yale's one of the places, Yale's one of the five places where you can have athletics and academics both be number one priorities that to me was almost an instant thing that was a huge moment for me to kind of think step back and realize like that what he just described priority being number one and number one academics and athletics was directly in alignment with my values and, and things that I've, i found really important so even if connecticut wanted you to play football you think you would have ended up at a school like yale i do i think i made the right decision um i think it would have been harder uh, I really consider Temple Temple heavily being a you know true D one A school, um, and having the opportunity to play in front of really big crowds and do that type that whole thing. It's always what you dream about when you're growing up. Um, but I think Yale was a was exactly where I should have ended up. Talk about getting hurt. So MCL freshman year, I think you yeah. said ACL junior year. Yep, uh, uh, senior year. And I'm rubbing my ACL <laughs> knee. I think anytime you have an ACL uh, injury, like anytime someone talks about it, I just start like massaging it and being like, are you okay, buddy? Um, but talk about what it was like to go through injury and yeah. and how you were able to recover from that. Yeah, yeah. So um, my sophomore year, I tore cartilage in my ribs. My junior year, I had a high ankle sprain. Um, so I had my fair share. Welcome to football. Yeah, man, <laughs> yeah. And high school, I never got injured. Wow. So I turned an ankle playing, I think, sophomore, but sophomore year with basketball, and I missed like three or four days that was the most I've really ever been injured so for me it was uh, freshman year I'd never been sidelined before so uh it was you know going from freshman to senior year learning what I learned freshman year was a direct application to my ACL rehab process so for, 14 weeks out with the MCL and I learned what patience meant and I learned what process meant and those are kind of the two biggest buckets um I, I reached out to a mentor um he was a uh was in the Delta, um, the, the Delta, Army Delta Force, and he told me, "You, when you go from player on the field, you're functionally excellent at what you do. You're good at catching, you're running, you're, pat, you're blocking, you're doing all the things you need to do to be a successful fo- football player. When you're no longer a football player on the field performing, your functional excellence goes to zero, which means you need to be a connector, a communicator, a motivator, X, Y, Z, you name it. And I had to change the role that I had in my team. I had to, I had to open my mouth a lot more. 
Um, I never really had an issue with that. So that was actually kind of, that kind of fit the bill. But it meant that I had to, to rely on my relationships a lot more um, because my proven competence in the field was no longer there. That, what I, I really, really learned that a lot freshman year, learned that and then had to practice it again my junior year. Um, but the patience in the process really came through. So the patience, I had never been stretched to think about things longer than a week or a month or a season long. And I was thinking about things as making sure that I was getting back in nine months. That was my biggest concern. Um, from a process standpoint, going from lifting your leg, not being able to lift your leg day one to lifting your leg an inch on, on week one to finally being able to run in three months. Like those, that progress was measured by the day and by the process versus by the outcome or the long-term things. It sounds like that's been a mantra throughout your life, which is just get better, keep getting better, 1%, get and tack that on, and then you'll get to where you want to go. Definitely, definitely. So what were you studying? Psychology. Yeah. Yeah, man, people. Interesting, fascinating human beings. So you're interested in psychology. Yep. You, you mentioned Brian Kane earlier and mm -hmm. him coming in and being an influence in your journey. Um, you said you were there for five years. Mm -hmm. When did this notion of working for a company like the McChrystal Group start to formulate for you? Yeah. So my uh, shout out to Renee Shirk, my AP Psych teacher my senior year. That was the first time I ever actually loved the class that I was taking. So I took AP Psych and I just was like, this is so cool. Understanding people and having frameworks and models to understand people is fascinating. I laugh because I took AP Psychology my senior year of high school. And uh, maybe I won't mention the teacher's name. I Like I was turned off. I was not into it. <laughs> I went on to major in sociology and also studying people, but in a very different way. Um, so, it, you know, it is amazing, like, what a teacher can do to guide you uh, in your path and your journey. And actually, I had a great sociology teacher my senior year in high school, and that opened me up to studying that. Um, so things that you forget in your journey that when you have – um, teachers, sometimes they can guide you and shift how you navigate in the world. So, uh, so you took that class senior year and it opened you up to it. You're interested in it and you get on campus. Did you know you were going to major in that? No, I was still, um, being indecisive and procrastinating. I chose, I, I basically majored, decided my major the last day of my so sophomore year, which is basically the last time you can do it. Um, but at that point I kind of was already leaning that way. I was already starting to take the classes. Um, I recognized that I had an interest in it. Um, but really, you know, in terms of my path to my crystal group, uh, my captain, my previous captain, is my captain sophomore year, Bo Palin, um, came up to me after a game my junior year, and he was already a, a year into McChrystal Group, and he said, hey, this this place does leadership consulting, and I have no business background, zero. I had zero business background at the time. So, you know, we do leadership consulting, and I looked at him, and I said, people people pay you for leadership, and I had this fascinating kind of like, wait, wait a minute, this is not right. And we ended up, you know, chapping up, talking about it, and uh, I found my way down. I had to take a semester off because that's kind of how the way the Ivies in, in Yale works. You take one semester off so you can play your fifth year. So I took my junior spring off with the McChrystal Group basically on a whim. Um, I more or less got the internship, and at that point it was pretty undefined. Uh, my end of January, and I was down there the first week in February. So it was a quick turnaround. I all of a sudden was at McChrystal Group down in D.C., Alexandria. Uh, didn't know anyone and had this incredible experience for about three months. And so you get back on a campus, you finish up school, mm -hmm. and then you go to work for them when you graduate. Mm -hmm. yep. So give everyone an idea of what the McChrystal Group is. You've talked about leadership consulting, but I think like your response is that's that's a thing. I think most people listening to this would probably say the same thing. So give everyone a little bit of perspective oh, on... Fire me up. I love this. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, so, what, uh, what it is you guys do and, yeah. and specifically what you do and what you focus on and some of the 
concepts or constructs that you have gone deep in and and studied and and tried to understand and and also teach. Totally, yeah. Uh, so McChrystal Group is a leadership and organizational management firm um, based in the military. So uh, began in 2011 after General Stanley McChrystal came out of the military, who was the the command uh, commander at JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, um, basically working with all the the special special elite forces, um, your SEALs, your 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 Delta, your your army rangers, the, the, the elite units. Um, and he's responsible for really being the one that to start to take out Al Qaeda in Iraq and, uh, came back after kind of broke down all his lessons learned and started this consulting firm thinking that the same adaptability that we, that we use in the military is actually the same thing that can be applied across businesses, particularly in the 21st century, because the, the same problem sets are starting to emerge. Things are faster. They're more complex, complex, meaning when I go turn that, that car engine, that's really complicated. I don't know if it's going to start. If you got something that's complicated, there's a series of events, A plus B plus C, it's going to give you D. It's going to get, get, get you the answer that you think it's going to get it to. Um, and basically, this, the, the team of teams model that came out of um, the lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan is are helping organizations unlock that adaptability. So what that looks like on a day-to-day, we're working to transform leadership systems and leadership behaviors, and those two, two things go together um, to enable that adaptability at an organizational scale. So to think the bigger the organization, the bigger the problem set, the more we want to work with them. Um, and at a day-to-day level, I'm doing a lot of the program design as well as the facilitation and presentation of those leadership development behaviors. So I'm working more on the behavior side, kind of fits with the psychology um, in my background, um, but it's been, it's been a total, total fun ride for me. And what was it like for you transitioning from Yale and playing football and having that as part of your identity to move into, where are you, Arlington, Virginia? Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and, and working for a company. And, and look, I think that the transition from college to the real world is actually the hardest transition. Uh, I mean, I, I, we don't need to get into having kids and all the other stuff that goes on in life. But that transition, at least for me, uh, and having worked with a lot of college athletes, um, the identity... Uh, just changes and um, you know school is terrific but the campus at Yale is different than Arlington and the how you use your time and especially for athletes like when you're in college and you're a student athlete like your time they they fill it like they they really fill it but now it's like you go to work then you come home and then it's like oh do I make dinner like what do I do so I think that that transition for a lot of people is, is a challenge and not to mention you spend your entire life in school and now you're not in school. So talk about the transition, uh, also your identity and how it shifted or changed and evolved. Yeah, totally. I, I think athletes operate on net time, no extra time, right? Um, and everything is filled and you have uh, classes in school and if you're not doing something, you should be in the weight room or you should be in the training room, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, so going to a nine to five, first and foremost, the a mental exhaustion is, is kicks right in. So like the first, like I think the first two weekends I was sleeping 12 hours on Friday and Saturday, right? Cause you had to just kind of recoup the mental exhaustion. Uh, what I, I think the biggest lesson learned, and I went through a, a pretty solid eight to 12 months of, of imposter syndrome. You go from being the man on campus, understanding how the system works to being thrown in. For me, I, I didn't ha- even have the business etiquette down. You know, I, I, I could write emails, I could structure thoughts, um, but I didn't have that that kind of more formal skill set. Um, love mom and grandma that, did, that they didn't pass that on. Uh, so so for me, it was it was this imposter syndrome of I really want to add value. Um, 
I'm supposed to be this, this, you know, high profile, high quality student athlete, but I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I don't feel like I'm actually, you know, helping the company or my team move anything forward. And part of that was humility to step back and just, and just really be okay with learning versus doing. And there's this whole idea of being, and there's this whole idea of action. And I had to be versus try to act and do that was a, that was a total shot to my ego and confidence, um, for sure. So I'd say the first eight to 12 months, there was just this huge learning curve. Uh, I'd also say that I was trying to attack the job and life the same way that I attacked the season. And I look at my, my fifth year, my senior season, and it was exhausting. And by two-thirds of the way through, I was burnt out, mentally, physically, emotionally burnt out because I was giving so much to the team. Um, now, I could do that because I only had three to four more weeks left, and then I could basically say sorry and 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 go, go take that time off. But when you're, when you're an athlete and you're running through your season, you give all you can to that three- to four-month time period. Life's not like that. And I got that, I got that wake-up call. I got that smack to the face real quick because I was trying to run through life and quite literally the seasons, so in that case the summer and the fall, the same way that I had tried to do that with my, with my sports season. And I was running myself down. I was traveling too much on, on weekends. I was trying to commit to too much. I was taking too many projects, and I was not learning it the way I should have. Um, and I wasn't framing things the right way. And doing so, I think about eight to 12 months in, I got real, real frustrated, um, was just kind of everything. And that definitely affected my entire disposition um, and all the different areas of my life. Were you a captain in high school? Captain in high school. Captain in college? No, I was kind of the number two um, in college. We only have one captain at Yale. Oh, really? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, that's actually one of the, one of the toughest things. Uh, one of the biggest letdowns of my college career was not getting captain. It was the one thing I always wanted as a freshman. Um, I wouldn't tell you that I wanted much. Uh, titles generally don't mean that much to me, but I didn't want the title. I wanted the responsibility. I wanted to bear the burden of leadership. I didn't want to wear it. So f- when I didn't get captain, it was the same week that I got my ACL operated on. So I didn't get captain on a Sunday, and then I got uh, my ACL torn up <laughs> and stitched back together on, on Thursday. It was uh, right before th- right the, or the day before Thanksgiving or the, whatever it was. Um, that hurt, man. Uh, in terms of identity crisis, like I went through physically, I'm not who I thought I was, and I'm gonna have to change who I wh- who I am physically moving forward, and emotionally and from a perception standpoint, my teammates don't think I'm the leader that I thought I was. And that was that was tough. That probably took me a month and a half to to really work through. And Why try- do they just do one captain? That's not something that you hear. Yale Is that tra- a Yale, Yale tradition? tradition. Always how it's happened. Ivy League. Do all of them do no, that? No, it's, it's a, a Yale, Yale tradition. Um, Harvard tradition, I believe, as well. Uh, but yeah, Yale tradition. I don't actually think it's the best model. Uh, if you look at distributed leadership, particularly for a team of 105, there is a lot of utility in having multiple captains. Yeah, most football teams now have a leadership board, and they have you know 10 to 12 guys, and they meet regularly with the yeah. coach. And um, you know, it, it's I've seen it. Uh, I think people that didn't play football, and I'm definitely one of those people. Uh, when I got to work with a football team, I didn't realize how big 105 people are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they it is a lot of people, a lot of moving parts, like you said earlier, a lot of roles. And I would imagine it'd be hard to have one captain for, for a basketball team of 15, let alone a, a football team of 105. Having said that, so captain in high school, not a captain, but still a leader in, uh, in, in college, and then you, you now train others. On, on leadership best practices and consult others on best leadership practices. I was with a college athlete the other day and I asked him if he was a captain and he said, no. And I'm like, did you want to be? He's like, 
I want to lead, but I don't need to do all the monotonous responsibility and tasks that come with being a captain. So it's interesting to hear you say, no, I wanted the responsibility. Uh, it's just a different thing that you don't hear very often, which is, I think, what makes you unique. As you've studied leadership, as you've experienced leadership, what what makes a great leader? Yeah. So I, let me start with why I wanted to be a captain. And um, this I, I, I didn't poach, I poach a lot of stuff because I get to work with and hear from smart people and hang out with people like you. So I poach a lot of stuff. This one, I actually um, I thought a lot about why I like to be out front um, and why I like to stand out. And I think that leaders can be three three types of things. You can be a rock, you could be a, a mirror and reflect, or you could be a prism. And if you look at what happens with light, and I love this concept of light, light being a, a source of energy, light being something that illuminates the problems, that um, creates solutions and allows you to create direction, light being a really metaphor for, for, you know, for leadership um, and energy. When you are a rock, you absorb everything, right? Rocks absorb all light. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't make anybody better. When you are a mirror, you reflect it, which means that from a one-to-one basis, when you, it's transactional. I, when I get energy from you, I'm going to give it right back. But there has to be something that, you know, that, that we're, we're surrounding ourselves with, is, you know, transactional. Then when you're a prism, it means that you're radiating and multiplying the people that are around you. And I always say I like the spotlight because it gives me the ability to radiate light. So when I'm facilitating, when I'm presenting, when I'm leading, um, I have the opportunity to radiate and multiply the talents and efforts of people around me. And that's why I wanted to lead because um, it's exhausting. Um, it's a lot of times thankless, I think. However, it gives you the opportunity to build those around you in a way that um, that you really want to. You want to see the the team and the people in, around you interact. So, in order to be a leader, you have to fill your cup first, and then with the overflows, you can take care of everyone else or shine more light. So, you need to have that light on you, and mm-hmm. then from that place, if you're in a good good place you can then light up everybody else what do you do to intentionally make sure that you're where you need to be yeah i'm, t- I'm huge on energy um i consider myself an optimistic realist which means that most of the time when you see me you'll see me positive and energetic it doesn't mean that i'm um uh not skeptical of where we currently are of, of our realistic situation that we're in right now so what i do for others um I have done so much reading and research on happiness and how it spreads. And one of my favorite stats in happiness is the most dominant emotional personality in the room. So if you walk in with a bad attitude, shares their shares their energy within two minutes, shares their emotion within two minutes. And uh, you know, took emotional intelligence in college. Is my thesis on emotional intelligence, and that fact alone has changed, transformed the way that I show up in a work show up in a workplace in a team environment because then I'm if I can walk in and I can walk in positive and humble and happy for those around me I'm actually increasing the performance all right before you we're going to go into emotional yeah, intelligence yeah. and what you learned in college and what you studied but before you do that I want to ask that question again mm-hmm. and I want to know what do you specifically do forget about others what do you do to make sure the old oxygen mask analogy, right? Put your oxygen mask on first, then you can help others. You're talking about the light, like give me the light and then I'll, I'll, you know, provide light to others. What are you doing to make sure that your light is shining bright or your oxygen mask is flowing or whatever analogy you want to use? What actions do you take to make sure that you're your best self? Yeah. Micro and macro rest have been big for me. Micro rest is the five minutes you have between meetings. It allows that's that to me is either I've taken a few deep breaths, I'm reframing what I need to be in the next meeting, um, whatever that interaction is going to be. The macro rest is I've taken a much more diligent effort to make sure that I have at least one, usually two weekends where I'm in DC without 
significant plan. So that allows me to recharge in the way that I need to. So when I show up on Monday, I always say Monday is my favorite day of the week. By saying Monday is the, my favorite day of the week, it actually means that it has to be. So people are like, dude, dude calm yourself down. It's Monday. Like, well, it's Monday morning. You're out here giving high fives already, and I will, I will be the high five person in my office. Uh, that's a super intentional effort. Now, for me to do that, I need to make sure that I'm recovered enough, and I need to I need the time away from things enough, so the macro rest and the micro rest, to allow me to come into that situation and being able to accelerate versus just endure. And what about on a daily basis? What do you do daily? So I've um, my right now. I'd say my habit my habits are a little um, are not where I want them to be. Uh, however, uh, exercise is big for me. Eating right is big for me. Hydrating is big for me. Um, and meditation is all things are all things that I really um, try to build into a daily. I usually hit at least one of those every single day, and that usually helps me keep going. Ideally, if I'm if I'm four for four on those, I'm rolling. I'm feeling really good. You were part of an elite athletic team, and then you go to work for a company that I'm I'm imagining around some of the most elite military minds uh, that this world has ever seen. What are the similarities between business, sports? military yeah so but the the athletes and the military folks that I work with have this ability to flip a switch and the example I always give is an athlete when they step across the white line can go into game or do mode like they, they can just go they can go play you play slap ass when you're on the on the sideline and you're joking around with a friend and as soon as you're on the field you flip the switch I've seen the same thing happen with with military folks and I think there's a there's a mutual respect for the ability to do that that I haven't seen everybody in society be able to do how do you think that both of you are able to get to that point intense focus on the mission and the mission is getting your job done, doing your 111th. And I think that, that right, so that was one of our biggest biggest things in terms of doing your job. Um, Bill, Bill Belichick, that's what the Patriots' motto is. You do your job, you do your 111th. I, I mean, you look at military tactical operations in, in a lot of ways. There's a shared, we call it shared consciousness. There's an understanding of what you and I are both doing, what our mission is. But there's also this intense focus on making sure that you execute the best you can because it's going to protect the person to the left and the right of you. Yeah, there's personal responsibility and almost an obligation. When you were talking about the left tackle earlier, and if that left tackle doesn't do their job, there's almost shame and embarrassment, real severe emotion that can be draining on people, um, but is also what makes the juice worth the squeeze mm -hmm. and the reward at the end because, you know, use the Patriots as an example and their mantra, and you mentioned, was do your job. But if you hear them mic'd up at the end of their Super Bowl championships, and they've had a lot of them, so you can go find them, they're all talking about love. Mm. And they're all saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it looks like this cold culture of like ruthless, you know, transactional culture. But then when you kind of go underneath the surface, I think because the attention to detail is so strong, and because their uh, process is not very like emotional it's pretty just are you doing your job or are you not it's pretty clean that at the end of that the celebration is this mutual admiration this mutual respect and it really they use love i mean they they say i love you like uh, bill belichick who you mentioned probably the best football coach of all time um you know is this cold guy who doesn't look like he really gets rattled too much or affected too much, but you watch him mic'd up or you listen to him mic'd up. It's all about love. Mm. Um, so talk about love as it relates to yeah, I was actually going to steal, I was going to steal your point there. If you, if we didn't ask that question, when it comes to love, I started telling my teammates when I hang up the phone with them, 
um, and, and more generally, that's gone from my teammates to everybody, in my, the people that I love in my life, which is a pretty wide or broad swath of people. Um, I'm pretty open with that word. Uh, I've started telling my teammates, which for a 21 or 22 year old, when I started really doing it, tw- you do that to a, to another dude. And like, there's a little bit of a pause when, before they either say it back or they hang up the phone. And what I decided was it's more important that they know that because what happens if I'm not here tomorrow? And that's something that I've taken with me in a lot of different places. I- I'll tell my teammates, even at work, Hey, love you. Really appreciate all your work and everything that you're doing. Um, and it's really just important for me to, to, to tell the people in my life how I feel about them. And I, I really started doing that right after I graduated. It's, it's been a really intentional effort um, to the point now in which the people that weren't saying it originally to me would actually are saying it back now uh, without thought, without a second thought. So um, that's been a huge, huge point in my life that just w- when I'm part of a team, there's a love for the, the something that is greater than myself. And when we're all part of that same same union, there is a such a respect for you being there and putting your time and your effort forth that I'm going to tell you that I love you when I do. What are the differences between the military and sports and business? Because like you're even let's just use that as an example, yeah. saying I love you in a locker room, um heck smacking someone on the butt, like that there are forget like the Trump locker room talk stuff, but there is a different dynamic that exists in a locker room than in a boardroom. And I mean, that's, that's just truth. Like it's just different. Um, talk about some of the differences that might present themselves as far as the teams that you've been a part of in sports. And, you know, I know the McChrystal group is all about teams and building teams and high functioning teams, but where is there maybe differences that you have learned from talking to business leaders and you're working with big companies where perhaps the agility that you talked about earlier is is different than it might have been for a military team. I'm just curious if there are differences that you're running into as you go out and, and talk about a lot of these concepts and constructs. Yeah, I think the one from a civilian point of view, right, is that military is life and death. And the more that, that that question gets raised a lot when we're in those when, when we're working with clients, and somebody will raise their hand and say, "Well, you, ha- I mean, you guys were you guys were in a really dangerous and hostile situation," and it's always interested interesting to hear the folks that have been through that experience say, "The same type of same type of necessity that we had to change is actually the same one that you're dealing with in the business relationship," and it, it it's still for me. I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly how that works and how they they kind of rationalize it. But that's always the way that they respond to things. It's well, you're you're dealing with the same type of problem set. You need to come together the team as a team the same way that we had to. We had to figure our stuff out, and you have to figure your stuff out. And um, I would say, kind of sports fits in that middle section of um, you know, it's not, it's not a life or death situation, but there is a you know, there's that team camaraderie, locker room feel that that ha- that comes out of sports. Um, what I'd argue is that those that are able to tr- transcend um, authentically and genuinely all three of those domains in the same way are the ones that are, are memorable and noteworthy. And actually, I'll call out Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell um, recently passed away about three about three years ago, um, and they just wrote a book about. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be nominated a Bill Campbell uh, Trophy Scholar, and uh, went to his, his the summit, the, the third annual summit that they had this past year, past few weeks ago actually. And the one thing that always comes out is relationships. And he would approach approach teams when he was a, a football coach at Columbia. He'd always give you a big hug, and then he would tell you exactly what you did wrong. And that's what a coach does in a lot of ways, and that's what a team teammate does. They hold you accountable, but they're going to tell you that they love you. 
And Bill would approach everybody in that in that board meeting. He'd give them a hug, and people would be shook because they're like, "Why is he, like Why is he hugging me? Like this is awkward. This is weird. This is not what you do in business context. Context." But Bill would approach approach it, and the reason why his legacy is so strong is because he loved you first as a teammate, and then he would hold you accountable like a teammate and a coach. And I think that having that mentality wherever you are and being genuine about that transcends no matter what context you're in, transcends all of them. And for those unfamiliar with Bill, and I was unfamiliar up until about a year ago when I read the book that talks about him, Trillion Dollar Coach, which is a, a great book and was written by Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO of Google and, and some other people contributed as well. Uh, highly recommend the book. Great storytelling and really interesting concepts on leadership and Bill's approach. Um, and, you know, Bill was someone who worked with the top of the top Silicon Valley uh, executives, people that you've heard of, I think in the book, uh, don't quote me on this, but they talk about his relationship with Steve Jobs mm -hmm. and, and Bezos. And, and, and if yeah, I can, ahead. real quick, the story that the, it always gets told at this summit, and this is the third time I've been, um, the story that always gets told is that Bill Campbell, who mentors, again, like you said, some of the best entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, at one point, Steve Jobs calls, Steve Jobs calls Bill Campbell He's calling Bill Campbell, and he's out at a flag football, I think fifth and sixth grade flag football, and he picks up the phone, and he looks at it, and he hits decline because – and they said, wait, like, sir, like, Steve Jobs is calling. You should pick that up. And he said, no, 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 you guys are the most important thing for me right now, and he put his phone away. And that's the type of dude that Bill Campbell was, right? Like it was relationships. It was it was being present with where he was. And and sorry, I stole that a little bit. But th that's the type of nature that, that Bill really brought to the table. How does that land with you and how you think about your interactions with the world? I try to shut my laptop whenever I'm speaking to somebody. I try my best. Um, I have actively, and I might eat my words eventually, but I try, I actually don't have an Apple Watch because I don't want that much tech on my wrist because I've seen... There's nothing that bothers me more when I'm mid-conversation and somebody picks up their watch to look at a text. So being an uh, intentional connector and being present when I'm with other people is something that I really, really value. I think to that point, it's becoming <clears throat> harder and harder for all of us because the technology is so good and we are so connected. And also the technology is designed to cause us to be addicted to yeah. it. And so for me, like right now, my phone is not in my pocket. It's not on the table. It's actually behind me on my desk. Uh, when I'm working with clients, I'll often put it in my bag. I do like to have my computer out because I often will take notes um, while I'm doing that. But I think it's something for all of our listeners to be thinking about is what can they do to intentionally be present for people uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and on a moment-to-moment -moment basis because we are now living in a world that's designed to hijack your attention. And if you don't create some intention around that and some systems, then you're going to get hijacked. And um, it's almost going to be out of your control. So it's a really cool story. And I remember reading that in the book as well. So highly recommend people check out that, that story. Uh, talk about emotional intelligence, mm. because I think it's something that has become more and more mainstream and, uh, people are using that term, you know, out in the open, oh, that person lacks emotional intelligence or they have emotional intelligence. But I don't think a lot of us have a clear understanding of exactly what it is. So since you've studied it and since um, you're really interested in it, give people some background on on what emotional intelligence is, what you've learned uh, in studying it, and and how you bring it to the forefront for some of the leaders that you work with. Yeah, totally. So so I use um, in what one of the models we teach at Yale is the ruler model. Ruler stands for recognize, understand, label, express, and regulate. And that's all kind of under the emotional umbrella. So when you recognize, you're understanding, wh what am I seeing on your face? Um, and you can talk micro expressions, and, and there's really six basic emotions that all humans have. So whether it's happy, sad, disgust, surprise, um, 
usually there's you can pick up those cues when you're working with somebody and then even more so when you start to look at body language so recognizing is one of the first first most important things and that works for both for you brian when i'm reading you it also it also is important for how i'm reading myself the understand piece is okay let's figure out what's the origin of this where's the source start where does that 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 stream flow from so is it something that just happened are you bringing this as baggage is this a historical thing is this is it recently triggered and again the same thing that goes for looking at myself uh, the label part is one of the hardest things, and we often have more words for negative words, which makes sense because we're trying to remedy and clear those negative words. So when we label things, we've we whether you're, hey you're feeling you look really happy today, tell me about why you're so energized, or hey you look a little off right now, why are you sad? Are you depressed? There's multiple tonalities of that negative emotion. So the labeling is being able to kind of put an attribute to it. It oftentimes helps us communicate um, to other people. Then there's the express piece and actually how that's being kind of put across. Um, so how does happy look? How does sad look? How does that uh, manifest in, in what you're being and how you're doing? And then the last piece is the regulation, which is what people wa- wanna t- who like to do things, who, who are um, action-oriented people, they want to sit in the regulation, kind of bypass some of the other process. So when you talk about regulation techniques, one of the best ones is called cognitive reappraisal. Cognitive reappraisal is basically reframing. I'm going to go from uh, thinking about, hey, this is a, a really bad situation to this is an opportunity for me to grow. Um, the other one is is one of the best ones that's proven is actually journaling. Being able to put your thoughts on paper and get your emotions on paper is going to help you understand where they're coming from more and be able to address them accordingly. So the regulation piece is a really important one. When we talk to mental performance and some of the work that you and I work with athletes, regulation is where we do a lot of work in um, about systems and processes and behaviors to get people back to feeling green, feeling good, um, is often sits in that regulation piece. When you think about mental performance or when you think about leadership, what do you think this world's going to look like 10 years from now? If you were just to think about and, and throw something out there as far as where you think things are going or heading or, or what you're studying now and interested in going forward, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on I think that. Therapy is going to be destigmatized. Interesting. Mean, stigma right now, um, in general, with athletes, I would say more so with male, and I'd say even more so in the black and minority community. Um, I think what we're going to see is, particularly in athletics, coaches start to push athletes more towards mental health services. So you'll have a mental performance coach for the mental skills side of things. You'll have some type of therapist that is working with the emotional side. You'll have a trainer, which is physical, and then you'll have um, your actual coach, which is more skill set. So you're going to have all these different entities surrounding the athlete that's going to build this athlete up to be able to achieve peak performance. I think right now we're probably five years behind Europe. There's already more of a focus on this, particularly in European soccer. I think right now we're a little bit behind the curve. Um, and if you look at somebody like an Andrew Luck, if you look at somebody like uh, a Rob Gronkowski, who both just called out emotional distress is one of the reasons why they, they chose to hang the cleats up, those will be bigger parts of the game because they have to be. If you want to win, if you want to win a Super Bowl, you're going to have to have a full-time therapist on staff. That's just going to be the reality of the world that we live in. Um, I think it's going to have to happen in athletics probably in the next five to ten years. Yeah, it's fascinating because you have psychologists who will play in both sandboxes. Um, and it's it kind of reminds me of that we had athletic trainers. Like you had an athletic trainer when you were at Yale, and that person would do the tape. They, you know, tape up your ankles. They were the first one out on the field to check you out. Now a lot of pro sports teams, they have physical therapists, they have strength and conditioning coach. They've really diversified experts at each one. And 
I like how you outlined it because I think it's a mistake if you're going to say, oh, let's just combine mental performance and mental mental health, as we call it, or clinical psychology or whatever you want to mm. say. And I think a lot of people don't realize that those are separate. We also have psychiatry, which is also separate. So psychiatry, to give an education, like those people are MDs. They can prescribe medications. And a lot of people need that um, in order to be what they need to be. Then you have a psychologist or a psychotherapist and they are not prescribing meds, um, but typically they have a PhD or a PsyD and uh, they will work on clinical stuff such as severe anxiety or depression or whatever it might be. Uh, and then you have therapists where a therapist can be a master's in social work or, or marriage, family and therapist. And, and they're really tapping into emotions as you're talking about and your story and your upbringing and, and trying to help you. But the way that they help you is typically asking a lot of questions and having you sort of explore how you've come to be. And then you have mental performance coaching, which a lot of them will call themselves mental skills coaches because they're going to train skills like visualization or breathing or self-talk. And, and that's not to say there is an overlap in, in all of this. There is some overlap, but I think most of our society is not well-versed or well-educated on the different roles that those people play. Just like in the past, I think it's like, oh, the trainer can help you. No, let's go to a physical therapist mm -hmm. that knows how to rehab your knee or, you know, let's have the strength coach who really knows how to get your body ready to perform is different than somebody who may be taping your, your ankles. Um, so I think we still have a long way to go in fleshing all that out and having everybody in the psychology world uh, okay with those different roles. Um, so I think it, it's a little tricky. I think baseball has, has gone the heaviest into the mental side of performance, uh, especially in the mental skills. And then you're seeing the NBA try to lead the way when it comes to mental health. And they just came out and said, we want every team to at least have um, some kind of therapist on retainer. And then the NCA also is, is doing a lot and they're challenging because they also have their on-campus counseling centers. And uh, it's all tricky, but it will be interesting to see where it all where it all heads and where it all goes. As far as leadership development and the work that you're doing at McChrystal, like what excites you about what you guys are up to and what you're working on? This is still new. Like how long have they been around? You said 2011. About 10 years now. Right. Yeah, about 10 years. So so they're just getting started. Right. It would seem like. What do you think is is next for them as they continue to evolve and and shift and change, uh, or what has changed even as you've been there in, yeah. in the time that you've yeah. been there? It's only. I mean, I've been on staff full time for two years, and I've already seen it change. Coming back after my internship, so I came back on full time two years later. Huge change. Um, what what excites me? Um, so my current role right now, I'm an experiential learning designer. So basically, what I what I do is, how do I make experiences for you, learning experiences for you, as sticky as possible? How do I make sure that the stuff that you're walking into that I, that we've identified as your learning objectives are the same thing that you're walking out with, but the thing the things that you're actually implementing and retaining on a long-term basis. It's really hard. How do you do that? It's really Teach hard. Teach us, Oh, my goodness. So on average, all this this conversation, that whether that you're listening to this on the podcast or some of the things that I mentioned here, you'll remember about 25% of what we talk about in 24 hours. If you don't refresh it or, or, or bring it back up, you'll maybe remember about 25% at most. So that's called Ebbing Houses for Getting Curve, and we're all fighting that with our memory no matter what you're doing. So whether you're a trainer, you're a coach, you need to figure out ways to make more things more sticky. One of the, the easiest ways to do so is to make things visual and make things interactive. 
when I'm then doing something, when I'm taking the, whatever knowledge I'm learning and figuring out how to manipulate it, we forget that little kids are learning at a rapidly rapid level. And when a two-year-old, when, when, you, when you talk to a two-year-old, you bend down on one knee and you talk to them eye to eye. We don't do the same thing when, we t- when it comes to whether it's college or an adult learners. So how do you figure out the same ways that we, we bend down on one knee and talk to them in a repeated way? Typically, it takes between five and seven repetitions to actually get a point across to the point at which somebody remembers. Quick aside, we had a CEO one time come in and say, these people don't understand what the message and what we're going, where we're going in this organization. He, feel, he said, I feel like I've, I've had to repeat myself a thousand times. And I was going to say it, and at that point, I probably should have, shouldn't, should not have because I was pretty junior. But our partner says, you're going to have to say it another thousand times. Because that's the, that's the nature of the world and the people and the brains that we're working with. So how do you increase connectivity with, with the amount of investment that people are, are doing? You get them to do it. So when you go ahead and you teach feedback skills, going ahead and teaching SBI feedback, situation, behavior, intent, uh, or impact feedback, congratulations, you can rattle it off. That doesn't mean anything unless you actually go ahead and use it. So if you're creating practice situations for them to actually rep that skill, there's a better chance that they're going to go ahead and use it. Practice comes back to sports and oh, how much we rep and rep and rep. Uh, you know what's so cool? You were talking about seeing people on eye level. And this weekend, I was with someone who was talking about his experience being with one of the founders of Outback Steakhouse. Mm. And I grew up on Outback Steakhouse. Well, uh, that was my birthday. That was my birthday every single year. Birthday. birthday. <laughs> so, like, I was, I mean, cheese fries at yeah, Outback man. Steakhouse. Like, Moving I was. Again. I was a delinquent child. I would get cheese fries as an appetizer, and then I'd get a Outback special with cheese fries on the side. So, you know, if I die of a heart attack one day, you will know that the cheese fries did not help my cause from a young age. I haven't been Outback in a long time, but I keep telling my wife we're going to go for our anniversary one year. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Anyway, I loved Outback. So at Outback, they had booths. Like a lot of the the, um, seating was, was booth format. And the waiters, if you remember, if there was a seat next to you in the booth, they would actually sit down next to you so that they could be eye level. Or a lot of times they would just bend down. And at Outback, they always would bend down and be eye level. And their service was amazing. And if you had ever been to an Outback, even like the buzzers that they had right when you walk in, the the way that they moved, I think, really transformed the industry in a lot of ways because they cared so much about the experience. Brian, let me give you a point on that. So a uh, fact that I love, and I learned this from the CNOs, the chief nursing officers that I was able to work with, when they do rounding, rounding is when they go and they visit their patients, they made it a rule that you had to either sit or bend down to eye level. The reason why is because people perceive you being present with them for 2x, twice as long when you're eye level with somebody versus when you're standing above them twice as long so if you're trying to connect with somebody if you're trying to make sure that your presence presence is known even if you only have two minutes with them two minutes versus four minutes if you just sit down and get to the eye level so i love the fact that you're bringing that to restaurants and then your <laughs> awesome. eye level now you get another order of cheese yeah, fries exactly. it, you know and then they upsell you so it, it all works but it was interesting to hear him talk about the culture that they wanted to have and the environment and the way that they wanted their waiters and waitresses to interact with their uh clients you could call it um, and how intentional they were with literally eye level, exactly what you're talking about. And then the takeaway for me is just, we all know experiential learning works, um, but all too often we get into this lecture format and none of us want to just be talked at. We want to experience and play. And I had an image of, you're right, like I've got a three and a half year old and two and a half year old and they learn every single day because they're, they're learning. I didn't teach them how to walk. I didn't teach them how to talk. Um, 
they had to just fall and try new words and pick new words up and experiencing is is so important and it's one of the reasons i fired up this podcast is to get to experience and learn more and, and just play with these concepts with other people um obviously we can't experience it in the same way or else we have to turn the mics off and run around i don't think anyone would enjoy that maybe that's a podcast you can fire up one day <laughs> um but one of my favorite uh people that i've interacted with over the last 10 years or so has been you and i've just really enjoyed our conversations you bring you, you say this on your Instagram. You always say bring the juice. Like you always do bring the juice. And I really appreciate that. But you also do it in a way that is clear, it's concise, it's well thought out. It's not just energy for the sake of energy. And and I just really appreciate that about you. And I've enjoyed getting to know you over the past year and so excited to see where your career continues to go and your journey and your path. And to be somewhat a part of that is going to be exciting. So uh, if people want to follow you on Instagram, for example, mm -hmm. or anywhere on social media, where can they go ahead and do that? Yeah, man. And I really appreciate that. It means a lot. Um, thanks for being a, being a part of it. Um, you can follow uh, social media. So every day I post a daily, um, usually anywhere between 15 seconds to 60 seconds, something that I'm learning, whether it's motivational, whether it's uh, something related to performance, something I'm reading, something I learned at work in terms of leadership, um, at Seb Little underscore, at Seb Little, S-E-B-L-I-T-T-L-E underscore, both on Instagram and Twitter. It's pretty much there every single day. Awesome. And if people want to learn about the McChrystal Group, they can just go to McChrystalGroup.com. Yep. Yes, sir. Awesome. And anything Absolutely. else you want to plug, promote, Yale football? I mean, this is your time to, to promote anything, a nonprofit that you're interested in, anything that you think would be worth giving some attention to. Yeah, let me let me make one call out here. And, and uh, one of the ways in which I just approached, so, kind of, one of the things that I always ask the question, I always ask really two questions. One is, um, what's one thing, one thing you know that now that you wish you knew then? So that's my million-dollar question. Um, the other one I always like is, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? And the, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was enter every situation with humility or enter every situation with humility, leave every situation with gratitude. So and, and I always have something to learn when I'm approaching, whether it's a two-year-old or whether it's a 70-year-old or whether it's a CEO, I always have something to learn. And then I always have something to, to thank and be grateful for on the back end of that. Um, in terms of things that I'm, uh, as I'm, as I'm working through, um, there's this, this organization I'm involved with, a, a friend of mine started it up, uh, called College Next Door, which basically pairs um, high school students with college mentors to go through the process of mentoring. So as a freshman in college, you can really relate to somebody who's, who's going through the college admission process as a junior, and being able to pair those two and work those two together. DC-based, um, you know, would love to put, put a spotlight on them as well. Um, but I would say it's probably the top thing that comes top of mind right now. Awesome. Yeah. I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, go over to iTunes and write us a review. It does help us as we continue to expand our reach and build this thing out. Seb, my man, uh, this has been fun. I'm not surprised. You know, Seb's like, what, 24, 25? 25, 25 sir. He's 25. Yes, He's sir. like, I'm 25, man. <laughs> I'm done with being 24. So, like, to have someone as wise as you at, at such a young age is inspiring. And uh, anyone that wants to talk trash about our youth, just spend some time with Seb and, and tell me if he's not on it. So uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, grateful to get to know you and, and glad to have you here. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Brian, appreciate you having me on here, man. Bring the juice. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Micro and macro rest have been big for me. Micro rest is the five minutes you have between meetings. It allows, that's, that to me is either I've taken a few deep breaths, I'm reframing what I need to be in the next meeting, um, whatever that interaction is going to be. The macro rest is that I've taken a much more diligent effort to make sure that I have 
at least one, usually two weekends where I'm in DC without a significant plan. So that allows me to recharge in the way that I need to. So when I show up on Monday, I always say Monday is my favorite day of the week. By saying Monday is my favorite day of the week, it actually means that it has to be. So people are like, dude, calm yourself down. It's Monday. Like, what's Monday morning? You're out here giving high fives already. And I will will be the high five person in my office. Uh, That's a super intentional effort. Now, for me to do that, I need to make sure that I'm recovered enough. And I need need the time away from things enough. So the macro rest and the micro rest to allow me to come into that situation and being able to accelerate versus just endure.